Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. Michael Brown is the director of the Defense Innovation Unit, which has led the DOD's outreach to commercial tech companies. Prior to that, he spent a career on the other side of the equation in leadership roles in several tech firms. Mike, thanks so much for coming on this special crossover episode of the China Talk and Acquisition Talk podcasts. Thanks, Jordan. Glad to be here. Let's start it off with some China. You recently characterized the U.S. as being in a superpower marathon with the PRC. Why that characterization? We're in a uh, tech race with China, and while it's been identified in the national defense strategy that we're in a great power competition, I think really the competition is with China. They're much more formidable threat than Russia will be as we look forward into the future. And I think we're going to be in this for a while, so that's why we call it a marathon. So I think a more apt description, rather than in an era of great power competition, which may be true, is that we're really in a marathon with China. And it's about tech. So how would you force rank the relative readiness for this marathon of the following actors, the uh, federal government, academia and the private sector? And maybe you can segment all of those three groups as, as much as you'd like. Well, I think rather than rank ordering them as the article that was that you're referring to was recently published by Brookings. As we identify, each one of those sectors really has a lot of work to do. If we recognize that we are in a marathon and it's a tech race, each one of those actors uh, really needs to get organized as to what's required. I think the good news is there's broad recognition in the country that China's not a responsible actor in the world stage, and we've got to do a lot more to be competitive globally. So government, there's a role, needs to spend more basic R&D and uh, really broaden its conception of national security to include economic statecraft not to duplicate what China is doing, but to use our tools to make sure that they're reinforcing U.S. policies. Academia really needs to gear up both uh, to do more basic research, which is a role that it's played in the past. And for the private sector, we need to have more incentives so that private sector is doing more in R&D and thinking longer term. So each one of the sectors has a lot of work to do. Michael, you said you wanted academia to do more in terms of basic research, and we should look further ahead. Jordan actually had a really great episode and newsletter on how, you know, China's actually doing a lot more and spending more in the areas of applied research and more experimentation rather than the basic research. So can you just talk about that distinction between reorienting between basic research and experimentation or applied research and where you think the U.S. needs to be in the Department of Defense itself? China has demonstrated that there's a lot of benefit to investing in applied research that directly helps the Chinese transform their economy. They're very focused on the connection between technology and economic growth. I think in the U.S. we've been a little bit less focused on what levers to pull. So we have a combination of basic research and applied. But I think we need more investment in both. We need more investment in basic research because that's where the technology breakthroughs occur that really spawn entire new industries. So I wouldn't 
ask us to move from basic to applied. In fact, I think we need a lot more basic research. That's been on a steady decline as a percent of GDP, basically since the 1960s, when we spent 2% of our GDP on federally funded research. And now that figure is about 0.7%. And half of that is spent on health. We're glad for that during a time of a, a pandemic, but that just shows that the national security oriented basic research is down to about 0.4%. So we really need to look at where the seed corn is is planted. And that really is basic research. Government has a key role to play there because it's patient capital. Government can invest in activities that don't have a certain return, so are inherently risky, but you can have big payoffs from that, as we've had in the past when the government research has resulted in things like the internet, GPS, miniaturized electronics. So we need more spending there. But then, as your question implies, we also need uh, more applied R&D. And uh, that is likely to come more from companies. And I think if we were to look at increasing the R&D tax credit for strategic uh, technologies and recognize that there's probably a difference for those companies investing in quantum sciences than maybe creating the next dating app, we would encourage more of that research and the kind of technologies where we need to be on top. Sure. So a little pushback on that, Mike. The idea of basic research being something that spawns new industries is the, the logic seems more compelling to me when there's a greater sort of technological gap between the U.S. and its peer competitors. My fear sense now is that a, a major breakthrough is not something that you can really keep within the West, especially if it's more on the if it's more on the basic side, because science is international and you don't even need industrial espionage to just read the newest paper in an academic journal. And if the, the Chinese system and, and Chinese firms have shown that fast following actually can get you to near peer status, is there anything else that that basic research can do besides open doors, which both the U.S. and China can walk through at relatively the same time? That's a great point. I think that we can't not do research because we're worried about what others will learn about what we're discovering. I think there's protections that we can put in place for research that we don't want to share with the world. And we haven't been uh, terrific at doing that, as has been shown through a number of different reports that we've seen that identify that, that China is a you know, major participant in industrial espionage and cyber theft. So there's no question that uh, we could be doing more to protect the basic research, but that shouldn't stop us from uh, going ahead and making sure we are preeminent in science and the ones who are ushering in achievements in technology. So I'd say, yes, it's going to be easier for fast followers, but we need to be uh, recommitting to what has made the U.S. uh, science and technology enterprise great, basically for the last 70, 80 years. And there's tremendous spillover effects to the economy when we make those kind of investments. And I think we need to make sure that both from an economic prosperity and national security standpoint, we're committing to being first in science and creating those technology breakthroughs, despite the fact that others may copy what we're doing. Let's talk a little bit more about industrial espionage. So you first burst on the national security scene writing about the risk of Chinese investment and technology transfer through that means. I'm curious to what extent, and in the subsequent few years, Chinese uh, tech investment in the U.S. has basically completely completely dried up, which on some level probably makes this whole process more difficult. But curious, 
Mike, to what extent do you think this is a is something that really can be addressed, even if our companies are more focused on it and the U.S. government is more focused on it? Like, how much can any technology in the 2020s really be really be kept as a state secret and locked down? First of all, I would say that despite the fact that we've made a number of improvements to protecting technology, the legislation that I was able to work on, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, and then the related Export Control Reform Act, those have not really been put into practice yet. Commerce and Treasury are just now coming out with the regulations which will govern how that's done. So as a result, China is still investing pretty heavily in, in technology. Their overall foreign direct investment is down dramatically, but they're still investing in technology. And some of the work by the Rhodium Group and Bloomberg has really borne that out if you haven't seen that. So still pretty high level of investment in technology. Your second question about the global diffusion of technology. Yeah, I, I agree that there is a diffusion and you're not going to be able to have what the military used to call an offset, meaning you've got the capability to use a technology and your adversaries don't. That's going to be a shorter and shorter window. But that just means that we need to make sure we don't get behind in these technologies. And the best way to make sure you're not behind is that you're investing. In the early stages of that research, uh, that can be protected. But as that becomes more widely deployed, I agree with you, it, it won't be. But we still need to maintain that leadership in basic science, the technology breakthroughs that come from those scientific achievements. It's going to be important to make sure that the U.S. and its allies are leading in those spaces. And there's probably about 20 different game-changing technologies. They were just identified as critical and emerging technologies by the National Security Council. So we know what these spaces are that we need to make sure we're leading in and to some extent protect. Mike, it seems like the Chinese government and investors there are actually moving pretty fast, moving money to a lot of U.S. firms, and you're on the forefront of seeing a lot of this. And can you just talk about what have you seen from companies and how they've been talking to Chinese and been approached by Chinese uh, investors earlier, and even before like the Department of Defense even knew that these companies existed and their technology could be relevant? Well, you're right. I think we've shown a spotlight on... Uh, something that was occurring in the middle of the last decade, which is the rate of Chinese investment in early stage technologies was dramatically increasing. And we showed through publicly available information that about 15% of all U.S. venture deals uh, that were done in that year had a Chinese investor participating in the round. There were more than 500 Chinese-affiliated investors and I think China's done an incredible job of mimicking basically every type of investment firm that exists in the West. So we're talking about private equity, growth equity, venture capital. So whatever kind of deal you were putting together, there was a Chinese investor who could look like the rest of the, the firms in the West that were investing and, and participate. And that was their hope. And that gave them a front row seat to seeing what the U.S. was developing. Yeah, I think there's more visibility on that today. And of course, that's what led to the legislation that we just talked about, FIRMA and the Export Control Reform Act. I think that as we go forward, the Chinese are still going to be as focused on technology transfer and they'll figure out how to adapt, even though we have some stronger protections in place through that legislation. And as CFIUS does it work, its work and commerce does its work with export controls. 
Yeah, shout out to Pavneet Singh, your co-author on that <laughs> and other work. Coming back to the role of treasury and commerce, you mentioned this idea of an integrated economic strategy. What's the dream and how does that get implemented at the bureaucratic level? Well, the dream is that we think about competing on the global stage and we line up the different tools that we have. We really haven't been used to competing in a world where the U.S. and close allies are not developing the standards in technology. Just to give one example, which would be what Huawei has been able to do with 5G. So China has been very aggressive in determining what the standards would be. They put all their emphasis behind a single company here, Huawei being one of the national champions, and they have a national champion for AI, e-commerce, et cetera. And they make sure those companies have an unfair advantage when they're competing in global markets to the extent that when Huawei goes out and competes for business in Africa or the Middle East, the China Development Bank is along with them, making sure that the deal is about a lot more than telecom equipment and having good prices on that. It's really about an entire infrastructure play, bringing Chinese labor in to create that, China being able to sell its surveillance technology, which is being used on the Uyghurs and others in China to bring that along as well. So they're trying to make sure that those champions have a very unfair advantage when it comes to global competition. So we don't want to duplicate what they're doing, but we should make sure that we're coordinated and we've been a little bit less agile in terms of bringing all the tools to bear when we're trying to accomplish something economically. In the so, Cold so what War, do you think that's enough? I think there's a function of we haven't had to do it. In the Cold War, yep. we were facing a military competitor, which was the Soviet Union, and their economy was a fraction of ours. Uh, we've seen estimates that were 40, 50, the, the maximum was 60% the size of the U.S., uh, we were out in front with all of the technology standards. We had a lead in terms of the underlying science uh, relative to the Soviet Union. And a lot of that was developed uh, during the space race. And since then, after the end of the Cold War, we've not had to bring out uh, some of these tools. And now we're facing a much more serious competition. That's why we called it Superpower Marathon with a, a country that has that's integrated in the world economy, that has an economy that most expect will be the size of ours or bigger during the next decade, and that has made science and technology core to its national agenda. And you'd be hard-pressed to say that is core to the U.S. national agenda. In fact, you might be hard-pressed to define what the U.S. national agenda is. Yeah, Mike, you, you said something interesting about the integrated economic strategy and how China actually picks its domestic champions. I guess with the United States, it's not really in our heritage to be picking winners and losers or having industrial policy to that extent. So there's been a recent debate that I, I heard that was pretty interesting. I want to get your uh, view on this. So should the government or the Department of Defense itself pick some new entrants and scale them and turn them into domestic champions and do something similar? Or should it potentially choose existing primes as its champions? Or or how do you see that going forward? Yeah, let me just another angle you can take on is like, to what extent are the primes our domestic champions? And have we gotten all the sort of downsides and none of the upsides from our past however many decades of these particular firms adopting that role? I think what would be a better strategy than trying to copy China and anoint companies as domestic champions would be deciding what are the 
what I call game-changing technologies, what the National Security Council calls critical and emerging technologies. So now they're defined. But the question is what to do in those areas. Those are the areas we want to make sure with our allies, we're making the proper investment to make sure that we're leading in the basic science, that we're making the applied research investments as well, and then doing everything we can to make sure that the the competition that's inherent in the market creates the best suppliers. So again, I don't think we should be anointing a, a champion, but we do want to make sure that the ground is fertile in these spaces for strong companies to grow and that they're successful uh, competing on global markets. So I think it's really all about making sure that we understand what the sectors are, investing in those sectors, that the environment is, is fertile for companies to thrive there globally, and then we'll have uh, the right level of competition with China. It's not about uh, picking the winners and losers, which they've done uh, with their companies. Is there anything the U.S. can learn from civil military fusion? Absolutely. I think there's a lot we can learn from what China is doing. Number one, their focus on science and technology. Number two, the very long-term orientation that they take. And then number three, given the importance of technology to the military, how can you create close connection? Now, we need to think about doing that in our own way. Our own way would be not centrally directed from a, a Politburo, but to making sure that there's enough flexibility in the budget to invest in basic research. We already talked about how important that is. Number two, making sure that we work with our allies and partners around the world. That's an asymmetric advantage that the U.S. has relative to China. Their only named ally is North Korea. So we've got a tremendous advantage, not only with the science and technology community across many different countries, Japan, Germany, UK. Uh, There's uh, low-cost manufacturing that's available in Southeast Asia and India that we can take advantage of and an incredible trading block of probably 70 trillion plus across all those economies relative to the size of our own economy, which would be 20 trillion of that. So there's a multiplier effect in working with all of those economies and making sure that across there's a free flow of trade ideas and capital. So I think we should create some of the same strengths, but do it in our own way, which reinforces the benefits that we've created in the U.S. And the the other point, again, that I made in the Superpower Marathon article is for the private sector, we need to be thinking longer term. So yes, China is very good at thinking about timeframes that are 20, 30, 40 years out. We have a long way to go to change our quarterly focus to thinking long term. And in the private sector, we need to think about how our capital markets are structured to focus extremely on efficiency of capital in the short term. If we're in a superpower marathon, how do we develop capabilities? That's going to be every bit as important, if not more, than efficiency of capital. That's going to require some changes for us to make. So so you mentioned the idea of working with allies. I'm curious, just in your experience at at DIU, where do you see are are there major opportunities and what initiatives have you guys had? And how would you like to see this sort of cooperation among the D10 or whatever play out in the subsequent years? Could you also touch on the foreign military sales aspect, which has long been dominated by the big primes? Starting just with DIU's role, we have awarded contracts to companies from allied countries, but it's been a small part of what we're doing. We don't have the uh, resources or mandate to work extensively with partners. We would love to take that on. And we also believe that there's a role within foreign military sales 
to provide some of the uh, solutions that we're providing to the U.S. military. Think about small drones as one of those examples from U.S. or allied suppliers, why we wouldn't be supplying those to our allies as well as U.S. military. So I think there's a lot more that we could be doing at DIU. My comments really are much broader than what DIU should be doing. I think as we think about uh, working with allies in the tech space, and you mentioned that the UK has got to jump on putting together a group of countries, I've helped uh, with some thinking about how that would look from the US perspective. Yeah, we should be thinking about the critical and emerging technologies, or again, what I call game-changing technologies, and what would be the right way to collaborate with allies. It can be a different group of allies on semiconductor advancement than it is maybe from AI, but think about that superset of countries that could contribute in that space, and you'd want to be working on standards. Uh, you'd want to be working on uh, perhaps different areas of research, so it's not duplicative across uh, the different countries. And then what could you do to benefit the key suppliers in the U.S. or our allies as they supply in world markets. So what can we do to make sure that trade barriers are lower for these, what I'll call strategic uh, sectors, these solutions in the critical and emerging technologies? You'd want to make sure that the barriers are low. So we're trading uh, with each other. And that's an example of bringing together the economic statecraft. You want the technology strategy to be linked here with trade and immigration policy so that you're maximizing the benefit of these tools rather than the tools being devised uh, for other purposes and not really tying together. Mike, can you go one level down and pick your favorite game-changing technology and and walk us through how your ideals like allied cooperation will work in practice? Uh, Let's talk about uh, semiconductors where we uh, continue to have a lead. This is probably something that we'd like to continue. So in that case, We'd like to see some more basic research into what will allow semiconductors to continue advance, probably in terms of uh, basic density. You'd probably want to have both the private sector incented as well as some basic research that the federal government is doing. And why wouldn't we coordinate that with some of our allies? So think about Japan or South Korea or Netherlands. So where semiconductors are designed, you could be coordinating on who's going to do what part of the research. I think you'd also want to add some of what's already happening, a reshoring strategy. So now there's incentives with the CHIPS Act uh, to bring some of that capacity back to the U.S. That's certainly the case with TSMC and Intel, but there probably could be more that's done in that space. You'd want to be thinking about the talent that you need for that industry. So we've got to be starting with developing the STEM talent and making sure that's available for the future. And then, as we talked about, you'd want to make sure that you've got a trade regime that's encouraging that block of allies to be trading with each other, immigration to be free-flowing with that talent among allies. And then what could you do to make sure that your the procurement for the military, we already talked about that, that would be what we can source from allied countries and helping with foreign military sales. And then lastly, you'd think about the defensive measures, which the government is already well in tune with, which would be the investment screening and export controls. So you'd be thinking about all those together in a cohesive strategy. And that's what I mean by integrated economic strategy. 
Well, as this Friday night, I stayed in, not that I would have gone out anyways, but I stayed in to finish off an application to the Hitachi CFR Fellowship to spend next year hanging out in Tokyo writing the U.S.-Japan Semiconductor Cooperation Strategy. So you oh. pick one that was near and dear to my heart, Mike. Fantastic. Eric, you want to take us into the acquisition stuff? Yeah, sure. First, can you just talk about the Defense Innovation Unit, and then how did you get yeah. involved with that? Sure. The Defense Innovation Unit was started by Ash Carter when he was Secretary of Defense five years ago. And in fact, he started a number of initiatives at Defense to really enhance bringing commercial technology and, and getting the department basically modernized from a technology standpoint. Defense Digital Service, which brought in some software capability. He started the Defense Innovation Board, which brings outside expertise in to advise the department. And he started Defense Innovation Unit which he called Defense Innovation Unit Experimental at the time. And the idea was, how can we accelerate bringing commercial technology into the military? So he observed something that is second nature to many of us, which is there's a lot more investment happening in these game-changing technologies in the commercial sector than there is in the military. If we go back to the 1960s or 70s, DOD, the Defense Department, was leading and an early adopter of technology and this is really where the semiconductor industry was born, of course. The, we needed chips to power the space program. We needed them for miniaturized electronics, which were being used for nuclear weapons at the time. So the Defense Department really funded the start of Fairchild and then the spinoffs that happened subsequently to form Intel and National Semiconductor and, and on the rest of the industry that we know today. The Defense Department was behind that really was how Silicon Valley got its name and was an early adopter. Think about how that's changed as we uh, now move forward 50 years and think about artificial intelligence and cyber and autonomous systems. The Defense Department is not leading the development of those technologies. And rather than being an early adopter, we're probably a late adopter in many of those technologies. So we need to adjust how we think about acquiring technology and at least make sure we've got access to it adjust how we're acquiring is we've got to work on commercial terms. We're not developing it, so we're not setting the terms. We've got to move much more quickly. We've got to work with commercial terms and conditions and make it easy for small, innovative companies to work with the Department of Defense. That's what the Defense Innovation Unit was, was set up to do. We've done about 100 projects at this point. We've influenced about a billion dollars worth of procurement, which I'm proud of coming from a startup organization within the Pentagon up from zero but it's still a drop in the bucket compared to what the, the DOD buys. In terms of how I got involved, my predecessor, Raj Shah, asked whether I could help on a study that Ash Carter and, at the time, the vice chairman of the uh, Joint Chiefs, General Selva, had looking at what were the Chinese doing with early stage investing? What were they investing in? Why were they investing? How did that help them with a technology transfer a strategy. So we talked a little bit about that earlier, but that's what brought me to DIU. And I worked in that and some related areas for two years before being asked to lead the Defense Innovation Unit. Yeah. So tech transition is like the hot topic, right? And that's why I was actually interested in, in why you're talking about basic science being so important at, as opposed to like the, the more applied piece. But you guys um, at DIU in your annual report, you were saying like, about 23% of our finished projects actually transitioned into operations. And from a commercial standpoint of investment, that sounds pretty good. But in the Department of Defense, 100% is what you're supposed to be aiming for a lot of times. So can you just talk a little bit about 
how you're transitioning technologies in the Department of Defense, and what are some metrics for success at, at Defense Innovation Unit? Yeah, well, I'd say that when we put the data together, and it was just uh, maybe a year and a half ago or so that we did, we were surprised, not in a good way, with that 23% number. And I'm happy to say that number is now 43%. So what we found was a certain percentage of the projects that we undertook, the commercial technology was not ready for the military application. We expect to find that a certain percentage of the time. That's about a quarter of our experience. And that's fine with me. I don't lose sleep over that. We should be taking some risk and seeing some failure there. But I was very disappointed to see that a big proportion of what we were doing resulted in a successful prototype, but then did not scale. A big reason for that is often the DOD partner or customer did not have the dollars in its budget, assuming that the prototype was going to be successful. And one of the issues this highlights is how long the budgeting cycle is for the Defense Department. If I want to spend a dollar today, I need to have planned that two years prior. So this is at a much different rate of speed than what the commercial world operates in. And the two years is required because it basically takes a year for the Pentagon to put its budget together and get that approved by the president through the Office of Management and Budget, and another year for Congress to look at that and then approve that in defense appropriations. So that's way too long. And another whole topic is how can that be reduced? But because of the budgeting dilemma that, that I just highlighted, we found a lot of projects where there were successful tech sitting on the shelf. So we wanted to improve that. And now we've done that by focusing up front on what does it take to have a successful product and making sure those ingredients are there to get that transition rate up. So we'll not be happy until that transition rate is up to probably 60 or 70%. We're, we're working on that now. And when you mention success metrics for DIU, that's certainly one of them. But in addition to how successful is each project, we're looking at what's the impact of each project. So we coined this term of a transformative project. And I really uh, give credit to this, uh, to Secretary Mattis. When I interviewed for the job, he said, make sure DIU, because it's such a small organization, is punching above its weight. Make sure that you're working on things that can go across the services and give us new capability not just working on a project for a single component like a special forces unit. We all love special forces, but his point was, you're not gonna change the capability of the department by working with smaller units. So we took this on and said, we should be looking at when we decide to take a project on, what can go across all the services in a, as an example. So we have a project uh, that we undertook that's now achieved that, it's predictive maintenance. So this is something that Commercial airlines use all the time to understand what parts to replace and when. You know, you don't put a 737 in the hangar and say, okay, what's the checklist? They actually have data on which parts are going to fail based on the, the duty cycle of, of that aircraft and environmental conditions and what are the sensors telling us about where, et cetera. So we're now applying that to the military. We started with the Air Force. The Army is doing this and the Marines for ground-based vehicles, and we're now looking at naval aircraft. So this may be the first technology DIU's worked on that will go across all four branches of the service. Then other metrics we look at are how much money are we saving? We have a goal of saving 10 times our budget. If we're working with commercial technology, we ought to be saving the government money. A single project we worked on saved $300 million a year, as an example. DIU's budget is only $70 million, so... That single project made up half of the savings we were going for. And then speed. 
We want to be able to put companies on contract in 60 to 90 days, and we're often meeting that uh, target. And maybe the last metric would be how many first-time vendors are we bringing into DOD? We've brought in 65 vendors so far in the five years we've been in, in, in operation. So we want to add to what's called the National Security Innovation Base, or the base of suppliers DOD can draw on that it's much broader than the primes. Yeah, I'm glad you were bringing up the budget there. That's one of the most important things in my view, and it's really hard for outsiders to sometimes understand the kind of paradox it puts you in where you're supposed to say, I will know two years in advance that a specific development or prototype will work and what it will enable me to do. And so you're in this time loop where it's like, by the time that I figured out something's ready to scale and I want to pour rocket fuel on it, I needed to have known that several years in advance to get everybody on board, 50 layers of bureaucracy, and then get the dollars lined up. You said speed is all about the budgeting process, and that requires work with Congress. What is that next frontier of reform there? What does Congress really need to do, or what are you, what are you looking for, Congress, to help you out and actually bring in this kind of future of technologies, emerging technologies that can replace the legacy stuff and really transform the force structure? As we talked about before, the military is not leading in the development of a lot of technologies it needs, artificial intelligence, cyber autonomous systems. So in that world, the military needs to adapt its acquisition cycle and process to look more like the commercial sector. And that's all about speed. So we haven't had to do that because we've not been faced with the kind of competition that we're in with China. So tying this back to where we started, if we're in a tech a marathon with China, we've got to be moving faster. And that means that in a system where China can basically move by fiat and we've got a different process, we want to want to go to their system, but we need to speed up our own process. There's been a ton of work done on acquisition reform. I actually think there's quite a bit that's already accomplished in terms of giving the department the acquisition types of authorities that it needs. What DIU uses, the other transaction authority, is just one of those examples. Ellen Lord has done a great job in terms of creating this adaptive framework so that you don't have to, it's not a one-size-fits-all. You don't use the same acquisition process to buy an aircraft carrier that you do for buying small drones. So I think we've got enough flexibility in the acquisition process, which leads to your question, where the real reform needs to happen is in budgeting. So uh, it's all about budget flexibility and speed. So today we're neither agile nor fast, and that's what needs to change. So it's really a matter of trying some new things and building a level of trust uh, with Congress. It's not uh, changing the way the entire budget is done, but allowing for the flexibility for senior DOD leaders to change how the spending is done relative to what was planned for two years ago. So you can think about that as a proportion of the budget where there's flexibility. Of course, providing complete transparency to how that money was spent. It's not about hiding from Congress's oversight, but it's about recognizing that we're not going to know two years in advance what we need to spend on. Percentage of the budget should be allocated for that so that you can move quickly, as you said, pour rocket fuel on what is an urgent priority and you've got something that that you want to scale. And then providing the transparency on that after the fact. So I think that's eminently doable. Another idea that has been floated is why not work with portfolios of technologies as we do the budgeting? So why is it important for Congress to set a line item for how many F-35s, F-22s, F-18s? Why isn't there an aviation line? So you could do that with some aggregation as well. 
many different ideas, but they all need to lead to more flexibility and more speed. Yeah, this idea of budget flexibility is something we definitely need to uh, start tackling in just general conversations in the Department of Defense, in the public, because I think with great power competition, we're just not going to be able to keep pace unless we we address that. And one of the things that I want to bring it back again to this basic versus applied, because it seems like the technology labs, DARPA, Army Research Lab, all the ones throughout the services, they do a lot of great stuff. And like DARPA was able to do AI and robotics and all these things very early on. And it, I call it the boomerang, right? It'll start out in a DOD lab and then it will diffuse into the commercial industry. They'll take it, they'll scale it. By the time it becomes uh, you know, commonplace, now it's ready for the DOD to have these set piece plans to bring it back in. And in my view, it seems like some of the labs, because of that quote unquote value of death, they tend to drift more closer to basic research rather than applied and really focusing. Like as Jordan said, there's, everyone's going to be working in the basic side, but like the real problem, I think, in the Department of Defense is really taking that and then applying it in, in a specific context. So what's your view there and how would you push back? I think there's different roles that, that the organizations play. For example, DARPA is about long-term research. So I think they have a very good model. It's been proven basically over the last uh, 60 years or so. Their model of working with outside contractors, academics, to bring in new thinking, new ideas on hard problems and work on things that are maybe 10 or 20 years in the future, I think that's a great model for basic research. And then the labs obviously are working on specific priorities for uh, the services and are very much trying to do work that fulfills more current needs. I would probably disagree a bit and say that their basic research Some of what they do is that, but they're clearly working on things that would have a nearer term applicability relative to DARPA. Yeah, I I don't know. There's just like certain projects that I read about. The Army is coming up with visual cloaking uh, technology. (laughs) It just seems that would be awesome, but that feels like a long way off. Yeah. When folks are listening to this episode 25 years from now, Eric, you're going to look really stupid. (laughs) I hope so. I I hope I'm that guy. Yeah, I guess with the the S&T... And, and just like getting breakthrough innovations. I was talking to a friend who was talking to me about non-military S&T, science and technology in China. And she was saying research is more based on interpersonal connections than like the peer review process. And they were talking about that as a disadvantage. But when I was looking at the history of like weapons development in the 40s and 50s, like a lot of the revolutionary stuff actually came through interpersonal trust where a person with an idea found someone with money, and they didn't need to go through, get a consensus among all of these different types of groups just to start something. And so in some ways, I look at the Chinese model as maybe more inviting to get these unexpected payoffs, these impacts, like the, the 10x, 100x returns, whereas the Department of Defense, we were more objective, peer-reviewed, and that kind of like stifles us into the already known world. Are you like, do you have any information on how China does their research and development? And can you riff on that trade off between trust and then objective peer reviews? I think this is why it's important to do multiple types of research. To your point, in our history, the Defense Department has moved pretty fast. We think about the example of uh, Admiral Rickover developing nuclear powered submarines. That was a project with great urgency and his personal 
persistence, conviction uh, drove that to a large extent. So we need to allow for those champions who have good ideas to still be able to work in a manner to bring uh, new ideas to fruition quickly. But there's different roles for research that we've talked about uh, throughout today. We need to be encouraging the basic research that can yield breakthrough ideas as well as failures. And then we need to be also sufficiently funding the applied research. So I don't think that of this as an either or uh, situation. The more process we put in place, to your point about uh, peer reviews, peer reviews are an excellent way to make sure that we're not working on something that's not going to go anywhere. So I'm a big fan of those. But the more process that we have in place, you do have a tendency to regress towards the mean and not be able to have the freedom to do breakthrough things. So I don't think that I, I put that as an orthogonal concept to uh, peer reviews. I think peer reviews can be beneficial no matter which type of research that you're doing. But we do need to make sure that interesting and creative ideas can can break through and can get time and attention uh, so that uh, we can realize the benefit of creativity. This is the benefit of U.S. individualism, creativity, entrepreneurialism. So when we think about competing with China, we need to think about how do we double down on what the U.S. is good at? We don't need to be copying their system. We need to be uh, doubling down on U.S. strengths. With the peer review, there's a difference between peer reviewing like operational tests or, or results versus peer review stopping you from even be able to publish or start your research in the first place. And I, right. I just fear that we're too much on the side, at least in the Department of Defense, of needing that peer review of paper plans before you can even prove something out in the real world, where you want the, the iterative feedback and the real tests and the real hard questions. I think that's right. When I hear General Hyten speak, he talks about the importance of speed and how over the time period since we won the Cold War, we seem to have lost that sense of urgency. So I know he is one proponent of bringing that back. I certainly believe in what he's saying. When I think about the culture at the Department of Defense, almost everything that we're facing could be solved if the number one priority was speed. And I think that speaks to I think that speaks to your point about how you can put in too much process and have that really slow you down. And I think that happened over a period of many decades and put in for good reason, but the end result is we're slower moving than we need to be. And it comes from a time period where we were not competing with a superpower that, that we're gonna need to make sure that we hold our own against for the next couple of decades. Mike, anything you'd like to leave our audience with, reading recommendations or, or closing thoughts on this conversation? I think it's uh, very important that we get organized to face the competition that we're in with China. It is a tech race. And to do that means we got to be thinking longer term. we got to be investing in ourselves. That means in education. That means in creating some moonshots. It means in more research. We have to be thinking longer term. What do we want the U.S. to have accomplished 20, 30, 40 years from now? We want a very vibrant economy. That's where we really outshone the Soviet Union. We created a, a tremendous economy that's much bigger, better performing than, than they could envision. And we need to be thinking about updating the science and technology enterprise for what we need in the next 30, 40 years. So that means after we revitalize it with basic research, 
We need to be moving fast because we are in a race. And from the military standpoint, we've got to make sure that we're accessing that. So that's where DIU fits in. We've got to be able to access that technology and make it easier for the private companies who are thriving in these game-changing technologies to be able to work with the Department of Defense. Mike Brown, thanks so much for coming on China Acquisition Talk. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.